again, fellow travellers, and a belated New Year's welcome to Podcast 97 in our series You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb, and me, Simon Calder. And can we make it to our 100th edition? Only three to go, but let's focus on this one, which is about all the irresistible travel options for the coming year. And I'm delighted to say we have as our guest someone who knows an awful lot about hot destinations. Indeed, she has a new fortnightly uh, column appearing at The Independent. Of course, Lucy Thackeray, Deputy Head of Travel at The Independent. Hello, Lucy. Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, Lucy, and welcome to the podcast. Now, for starters today, before our main course on destinations, let's have a quick look back at last year and a moment of self-congratulation. Anchor.net, the marvellous, amazing hosts of our nearly award-winning podcast, summarised our 2021 achievements in a few neat slides. Your show made new friends in new places. You got your first streams in four new countries, Hungary, Thailand, Denmark and Uruguay. Actually, I'll stop doing stupid um, uh, USA accents. Um, I'm glad it's Uruguay, which is one of my favourite countries. Your audience has increased by 187%. 130 fans listened to you more than any other podcast. Nine fans spent their birthdays listening to you. 40 fans listened to most of your podcasts. (laughs) You released 1,157 minutes of content across 41 episodes. Wow. Well, well, lucky, lucky world. That's all I can say, really. But um, uh, these are extraordinary um, numbers, Mick, and thank you very much for that. Um, Of course, our most recent podcast um, was one which uh, I I think a lot of people, I hope, has enjoyed. Your very well compiled and hosted, uh, world-beating, in fact, um, Christmas quiz. Um, But I did notice when I was listening back, there was one round that uh, didn't make the cut, which, if my memory serves me well, um, was all about rivers. Ah, yes, and not any old rivers, though. Colourful rivers. And new listeners should also know that the contestants were Simon, accompanied by a very silly hooter, and Lynn Hughes of Wanderlust magazine with her Tibetan gong. Do bear with us, by the way, uh, Lucy, a bit of self-indulgence again. And uh, I should say I was the questioner and had a bell. Colourful rivers. I think that's self-evident. Uh, this river flows through the most countries in the world of any river, if you see what I mean. Um, it flows southeast. Lynn. Danube. Yeah, gosh, very well done. Any idea how many countries oh, it is just, just for fun? I got this wrong in a pub quiz recently. Have you um, learned from your mistake? Ten, ten, ten. Yeah, spot on, Lynn. It is, in fact, ten. Uh, any idea which ten it is, quickly? Either of you. Um, If I do five, maybe Simon can do five. I'd say Germany, Austria, um, Croatia, Slovakia, Hungary. I'm not going to include Croatia, but I'm going to say Serbia and I'm going to say Romania and Bulgaria and maybe even a little touch of Moldova. Yeah, uh, Ukraine. And indeed, you're right about Croatia. It does take in quite a varied chunk of uh, of Europe, doesn't it? Um, Okay, here's another one. This is the second longest river in its country. Um, it's been called the Sorrow of its country. Yes. The Yellow River. 
China's sorrow, mm. but also the muddiest river in the world, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. Yes, the cradle of uh, it's the country's civilization, the muddiest. It's not as long as the Yangtze, but uh, it is uh, certainly more colourful. Yellow silt or mud is what gives it its um, it, its name. Uh, why is it the sorrow of this country, Lynn? I don't uh, because there's been so many floodings over the years. Sadly, obviously they've done a lot of damming since, but um, even now it does flood in places. But yeah, it's there's been obviously tragic floods through history. Ah, yeah, yeah. Now this river flows for around 80 kilometres or 50 miles from the Apennine Mountains to the Adriatic Sea through the south of the Emilia-Romagna region, um, to be specific, between the towns of Rimini and Cesena. Uh, it's named after the Latin word for red. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go po. Uh, no, sorry, Simon. So I'm going to carry on with the clues, Lynn. You don't need to say anything until you've heard them all. Uh, now, during the Roman Republic, uh, this river marked the northern boundary of Italy. And when uh, Julius Caesar, who was governor of the province, um, the other side of this river, uh, when his governorship ended, the, the Roman Senate ordered him to disband his army and return to Rome. He was explicitly ordered not to take his army across the said river, which was the northern boundary of Italy. Uh, but he did do that. Um, and uh, he therefore um, crossed a boundary and he... Is it the Rubicon? It absolutely is. Well done. Yes, yes. So a point of no return. So, so uh, yes. So he he basically um, burnt his bridges, as it were, and crossed the Rubicon, uh, uh, a point of no return. And uh, uh, it, it was it was even it was a pretty minor river even during Roman times, but now it's just um, I think pretty pathetic and uh, obviously red, uh, but uh, very polluted. I didn't come out of that too well, did I? Um, maybe it was uh, good to uh, keep it out of the actual programme, and I'm, I'm sorry that I even mentioned it. Well, actually, to be fair, I didn't cover myself in glory as question um, person. Uh, I forgot to say that the Yellow River is, of course, in China, and that the colours of the three rivers were blue for Danube, yellow, of course, for the Yellow River, and the slightly trickier red for the uh, River Rubicon in northern Italy. Um, how do you think you'd have done, Lucy? I mean, I would have failed utterly. I think rivers are just not my <laughs> specialist subject, I'm afraid. Well, we will be hearing plenty about your specialist uh, uh, subject. <laughs> but that's all water under the bridge, of course. And Aww. after, what, 22 miserable months, let's look forward to 2022. Where or what will be happening this year? And fortunately, um, I was uh, lucky enough uh, at three o'clock in the morning on Friday to be, I think, the first tourist into France after uh, the French reopened their borders to the Brits after four weeks. Um, and I enjoyed the rather grey drab Seine, uh, but I particularly enjoyed being back on the streets of the French capital. Mid-morning in Paris and a pigeon just flew off in front of me. The sun is sparkling on the streets and the parks and the people and their masks. Yes, pretty much everyone is walking around Paris wearing a face mask. Um, there's a guy on a scooter racing along the pavement. He is too, 
and even a lady on one of the Velib uh, city-wide bicycles doing the same. Now the traffic is pretty similar to usual. Oh crikey, that van nearly took on one side a pedestrian out and on the other a, uh, a, a railing but um, narrowly missed both of them. But what is completely missing is any sign of tourists. I'm close to the Pompidou Centre and just crossed over from the Latin Quarter of Paris. I had a look at the Musée d'Orsay just as it opened. Four people in the queue. The average population of one of the big bus tours is three. I base that on a sample of three. One with two, one with three, one with four people on board. The whole place is a touristic ghost town, which partly makes it a terrific time to visit. I'm just on my way to the new Pino collection in the old stock exchange. But it also makes you wonder when Paris, the capital city of the world's most popular country for international visitors, is going to recover. Well, what an inveterate early adopter you are. Um, and, uh, <laughs> by the way, what was that exhibition you were on your way to? Pinot, was it, was it a wine tasting? No, it wasn't. Um, and indeed, uh, Lucy uh, beat me to this. She was, I believe, Lucy, at the Collection Francois Pinot, um, what, back in September? Uh, and maybe, well, you, we, we can both describe it, but um, I, I was extremely impressed. What about you? I was, yeah. It's the old um, stock exchange, isn't it? So it's an impressive building with a huge dome in the middle and um, quite edgy art, I felt. Um, what, what was at the centre of it when you were there, Simon? Because there was something very interesting for me. Uh, okay, well, I got um, a, a, an artist called Urs Fischer, um, and he has created uh, effectively one of the a, a very beautiful wax replica of some random classical sculpture on a pedestal right in the middle of this uh, rotunda. And uh, the fact that it's made of wax is critical because. Um, he melts them, he puts a wick in and then he sets fire to it. And so therefore the whole thing kind of decays in front of your your very eyes. Um, what what did you get? Yes, it was exactly the same. And it was it oh. took us a while to realise that it, it had a wick and it was lit. So we walked around this statue <laughs> for some time before realising it was sort of dripping very elegantly onto the floor. But I thought it was astonishing. I really enjoyed it. Oh, gosh. Is it a metaphor for the uh, state of travel and uh, the travel <laughs> industry in our times? Or or maybe not. But um, but I'm sure things are going to um, improve. And uh, Lucy, let, let's get to the heart of the matter. Where do you think we should or could be heading this year? Well, I think for a lot of people, you know, they want to go somewhere far flung, don't they? I mean, they want to, you want to stretch your legs. You want a complete change of scenery, a real shock to the system. So I think a lot of people are now budgeting for and booking well ahead an ambitious trip of some kind. Um, I mean, definitely, I spoke to a lot of tour operators this week um, when I wrote my first travel trends column for the year. And a lot of people said the the duration of holidays has gone up quite quite dramatically so ah. I think one said um their average trip used to be um and this was an, an adventure tour operator so it was longer trips but the average trip was perhaps 18 or 19 days and it's gone up to more like 24 25 Gosh, that's days quite a lot. Trip. 
Yeah. yeah. What what sort of places? Any specific kind of areas or regions? Yeah, a lot of Central and South America. I think Peru uh, is going to be, I mean, it's always immensely popular, but that's obviously one of the big bucket list things when people picture going and having a proper adventure. That's one of the big ones. Yeah. But also more sort of compact places like Costa Rica is having a huge moment for their mix of, you know, adventure, rainforest, but also glamorous lodges, lovely beaches. You can do yeah. both. And Sri Lanka as well for being, uh, you know, compact and you can see a lot in one trip. Um, and, and also I think something that Sri Lanka and Costa Rica have, people are very interested in engaging with the locals, you know, visiting local businesses, getting on the trains, you know, getting out into, into the island or getting out into the country. So they both tick that box, I'd say. Now, in this uh, very good uh, article, which, by the way, all you need to do, listener, is um, search online for the hottest travel trends of 2022. And I have checked out that takes you straight there. Um, you've got, well, that there's no end to the number of um uh, dot 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 cations that can be created but you've got work and playcations tell us about that <laughs> yeah that's just me i don't like the word workation so i thought i'd make it sound more like vacation um yes no so this would be a mix of doing a bit of work and a bit of fun travel um which you know for for many people this is the first year it will be a reality a lot of people have been dabbling this for a long time journalists among them but digital nomads of many many kinds um but yeah i think with a lot of workplaces adding flexibility to go on a trip and work from abroad there are certain countries that just lend themselves to that so um mexico is a really popular one um tulum in mexico is is enormous you know digital nomad center bali has always been um a place for that but but lots of european countries are jumping on it and and promoting digital nomad visas where you can sort of stay a bit longer work from there and it encourages obviously spend and, and people spending time there do you think number 10 downing street might have pioneered this idea of workcation or <laughs> exactly well maybe now we think well we could all have a piece of that yes and, and uh, the article also talks about um psychedelics and sweat lodges mm. and uh, if ever, that maybe the cabinet office was the original sweat lodge who knows um now but, yeah this but, is, uh, sorry i was going to say this is something i tried not psychedelics but a sweat lodge um just before oh, the God. pandemic the last trip i did was to um Mexico and I went all around but near Oaxaca we went to a Temezcal which is a, the old sort of Mayan sweat lodge and oh. it's really amazing you you know you sit there and you it's a whole ritual and mezcal is thrown on the fire and herbs are thrown on the fire there's a shaman um yeah so people are sort of becoming more and more open to these sort of transformative experiences and, and would this be a kind of racier version of the romans idea of of kind of idling around in in bath houses whether they are in bath or or anywhere else with them um, with with hot springs available yeah it was more of a it was more of a ritual it was more of a you know often i think in native american culture they would have these to and make a big decision for the tribe so if something needed to be thought through and, and discussed people would go and sit in a sweat lodge and I think you know slightly different um, history in Mexico and, and various other countries but yeah it's more of a transformative feeling where you go in wanting to work through something and you come out feeling incredibly energized well one person if I may who's not feeling at all energized is um, poor old Novak Djokovic um, he had his his no vacation or however you want to do it uh, call, call it of course um, being uh, ejected after much legal shenanigans from Australia now your your uh, excellent uh, feature doesn't mention 
COVID, but I feel obliged to. And uh, to what extent are we going to just find the world divided into people who've been vaccinated and indeed boosted and uh, allowed to go more or less where they want and um, uh, people who haven't, whether that's personal choice, medical condition or whatever, um, uh, or indeed uh, being, in the case of lots of British teenagers, simply the wrong demographic profile to qualify for all this stuff in the UK and finding themselves banned from, from um, for instance, travel to, to Spain. It's still an absolute mess, isn't it, Lucy? It really is. And I think this is the problem with every country going at a different pace with its rollout and particularly boosters. Boosters are going to become the new hot thing to have, unfortunately, um, whether you've had them or not. And really imminently, like really, you know, France has already started imposing an expiry date on your uh, vaccine passport. So you have to have had a booster six months after. And you know, this is going to come, I mean, actually Austria already, um, you can only get in without quarantine if you had a booster now. So if you think about, you know, how many haven't had in the UK and how many families go on skiing holidays to Austria, enormous implications already. So I think it will be a case of, particularly for people with medical exemptions, there has to be a system. And this is where, you know, it took long enough to have a worldwide system for vaccine passports, and that hasn't even really finished happening. But there is going to have to be a system for these people because it's tremendously unfair otherwise to to bar uh, people who genuinely cannot have the vaccine for a medical reason. Um, That said, you know, I do think countries are doing this intentionally, aren't they? You know, they want to they, they want to add perks to having had a vaccine and having had a booster. So if it speeds up the takeout somewhere like the UK where the booster is available, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Can, can I ask whether you think that um, uh, some of the trends, Lucy, that we saw before uh, the pandemic, uh, the trends in travel like uh, wellness and slow travel and eco and responsible travel, green travel, and I suppose things that you might call, loosely speaking, ethical. Um, do you think these have all gone out the window now, now that everybody just wants to <laughs> wants to get away and um, and sod the, uh, sod the responsible side of things? I think there are just two camps there and there always have been. So I think at the moment, people are seeing a big uptake in places like the Maldives, where, you know, people just want to fly for a very expensive blowout holiday doing very little. Um, but equally, there are people who have resolved now to fly less um and i think that's been on the up for a long time so i think it's not so much that it was a trend then and it's not a trend now i think actually during the pandemic a lot of countries have been working on trains and and new routes and there are a lot of sleeper trains and things opening up and their train luxury train journeys opening up abroad this year so i think there will just be more and more opportunities for us to take the train particularly into going into europe and going across europe east and maybe stopping in a few places. Right? Uh, I should point out that, of course, that our excellent uh, colleague, the head of travel, Helen Coffey, is on her second year of uh, no, not flying. I mean, it was really quite easy in 2021, but she is uh, doing that. But you, yeah. but you, uh, you write about the Viertage, which sounds like another kind of um, well, a branch of, 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 of wine tasting. Um, but it's not. Tell, tell us what, what, what it is, the Viertage. 
Um, it's a luxury train in Vietnam, um, which I think was set to open even earlier than the pandemic and was delayed and eventually opened last summer. But obviously, nobody's been able to go back and try it yet from uh, from the UK. So I think, you know, there'll be an absolute queue of people wanting to go and do that um, in such a beautiful country to get, you know, have a scenic train journey. Yeah. I mean, in terms of just general trends, um, vegan travel is enormous this year. And, and it was already on the up, ah. um, but, you know, it was more places having a restaurant having a vegan option abroad uh, tours perhaps catering to vegans on their tours if there's food and drink included this is much more you know whole hotels going vegan which is astonishing so to be a vegan hotel you have to not only have entirely plant-based cuisine but also the materials you use um i believe you the uk's first vegan hotel opened in 2018 um in scotland but actually this year we've got uh, vegan hotels opening in Santorini, in Hawaii, in Panama. Um, so people will really travel for this. I mean, I've got a friend who I remember her going to New York on, on a stopover on the way to somewhere else. And all she could talk about was the best vegan restaurant she'd been to. So, you know, that's extraordinary <laughs> to me. New York has so much to offer. But I think if it's your lifestyle, which it increasingly is for people, um, yeah, people will travel for it. You can create whole whole hotels around it. I didn't uh, find too much in the way of vegan food in Paris during my stay there. Um, however, I did begin the year, and I didn't realise um, actually I was so on trend, um, uh, at the Sun Hotel in Lancaster. Yes, that one in northwest England, um, which does um, promote itself as, as vegan and veggie friendly. It's not exclusively vegetarian but the breakfast i had for the first meal of 2022 was fully vegan and truly spectacular so uh, yes well I'm, I'm glad to be sort of slightly attached to the zeitgeist here you, you certainly are well that's quite interesting isn't it because it might mean that um places that are relatively easy to get to but i think to be honest no one really wants to be delayed more than about 50 minutes in uh, like dunkirk <laughs> um might actually suddenly become a desirable destination if they mm. were to open a really top-notch vegan restaurant yeah there's certainly the demand for it picking sort of up on the idea of meeting the locals and doing things um in, in a different way um every year we're told lucy that uh, ecotourism is is the way forward and i'm sort of still waiting for it properly to gain some momentum is this going to be the year Yes, I think so. And I think, I mean, everything happens, you know, to, to, to different parts of the market. And I think definitely the luxury sector has become much more engaged with particularly people empowering tourism. I think people were aware that they didn't want their resort or their tour operator to you know, cause damage to the environment they were going to, cause damage to the ecosystem. But really, people are actually starting to think about the people in that destination and who is getting paid, where your money is going, um, which, you know, a lot of independent travellers for years have just been paying locals directly to be their guide. Um, but in the luxury sector, it hasn't always been the case. So I think it's it's just becoming much more top of mind. I think G Adventures had a poll um, this year of their, well, the end of last year of their customers, and 68% said their main concern was uh, making a positive contribution to the people in their destination, which is, you know, was huge, I think, um, and, and very much a post-pandemic feeling, um, because I think there has been, uh, you know, a feeling about uh, vaccine inequity and, and how things are different in different countries. But also it's just been a growing consciousness over the last few years of, of where your tourist spend goes and is it how it's impacting the destination, essentially. 
Well, in a bid to get closer to the locals here in the UK, um, late last year I went to the lovely Northumbrian town of Morpeth, uh, which is the home of the very jolly folk tune known as the Morpeth Rant. Can I just play you my version of it, uh, Simon and uh, Lucy and anybody else who's listening? Go on then. I think I preferred the uh, Hendrix interpretation, but thank you, Mick. Um, anyway, nobody I could find in Morpeth had any gripes about their their hometown. But in the past few uh, days and weeks, a few rant-worthy topics have emerged, and I enjoyed a visit to one of them last week. Now, can you tell where this was and what it was? It is lovely to be able to see London from a height, given unless you go to Hampstead Heath or somewhere. You know, with some height, you're not going to see much of London. Um, and it gives that sense of being a bit a bit like when you're in somewhere like Hong Kong or um, in another metropolis where there are hills where you overlook the lights of the city, even though we're not that high up. But I've never seen, say, Edgware Road from this sort of view. So uh, where was I, Lucy? Was it the Marble Arch Mound? <laughs> Yes, it was. You can you can kind of imagine people saying, I've never seen the Taj Mahal or Machu Picchu or the uh, Eiffel Tower from this angle before. But to say I've never seen the um, uh, the Edgware Road, which if you're not a, a, a loyal listener or a Londoner, you won't necessarily know is, is the um, A5 um, heading vaguely towards the Midlands. Um, yes, so finding a, 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 something joyful in any setting, I, I take my hat off to the lady I spoke to there. That was uh, that was Peck Tan. But I just wonder, um, ludicrous touristic white elephants, wastes of um, taxpayers' money. Have you have you got any Mick or Lucy? Well, I, I do know that that one, that that particular one cost seven million pounds. Was it six or seven million pounds? That ma- that mound. Uh, yes, and and uh, yeah, and that was um, according to the figures I've seen, twenty four pounds for each of the visitors who ever went there during its six months of a, a sad existence. Gosh, have you got anywhere, Lucy? I'm just trying to think of something that it's got to be something you've presumably made an effort to go and see and paid for. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one that I found very amusing, and it is in the homeland of bizarre attractions, which is Dubai. <laughs> um, uh, was the Dubai Frame? Have either of you had the pleasure? No. Frame. It is a giant skyscraper height picture frame. So it's it's an empty <laughs> middle. Uh, you take a lift up one side, you walk across the top, which is a glass walkway, and then you get a lift back down the other side. No. Um, I want to go there now. The curious thing about Dubai's attractions is they're often not <laughs> near anything. So this is near a, a highway and, you know, some sort of new build developments. But that's all you're seeing from this tower. You know, you can see for miles. It's amazing. Um, but it's very, very curious. And um, I just think if you want to go to a baffling attraction, Dubai is your place. <laughs> baffling attractions. And there's there's no doubt at all that um, huge amounts of money have been uh, spent on it. I mean, we kind of call them white elephants. Has anybody actually made a, a white elephant? Could we make one in London and charge people? Well, we, we, we sort of did. We built the jumbo size Millennium Dome, oh, if yes. you remember that. Yeah. Now, um, uh, uh, that was an absolute disaster as a tourist attraction, but it's now very successful as the O2 Arena and bizarrely has completely re- 
re-energised a, a part of London which was um, previously fairly what drab. What could be and- done though, following up your logic with the uh, with the Marble Arch Mound? Could it become because it has now closed, hasn't it? Um- uh, yes, I, I think they destroyed it in a controlled explosion, but um, or they they should have done anyway. It can't be um, repurposed as a children's ski slope or anything like that. Uh, no, although what a very nice idea that would be. But of course, we we love to hear about um, uh, other other white elephants of a touristic nature around the world. Um, so please, dear listener, if you know of some that we should be aware of, just tweet at you should have bt or of course go to anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there and uh, leave us an audio message we love to hear from you well next week's topic inspired by uh, lucy and simon's visit to the was it the collection pinot is that right is is um, yes that'll do yeah, yeah that'll do okay um is um museums museums new and old um i would like to talk myself about the museum of uh, broken relationships in um, in zagreb in croatia do not go there on a romantic weekend <laughs> <laughs> please let us know your favorite museums too meanwhile Thank you so much to Lucy Thackeray, who's Deputy Head of Travel at The Independent. You can find all her work just by searching online for Lucy Thackeray. That's no E in the middle. Um, and independent.co.uk. Yeah, here, here. And thanks for your advice and forbearance, uh, Lucy. But now from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. And from me, Lucy Thackeray. Goodbye. Goodbye.